Okay, chapter 25, <clears throat> we are on the chapter on marriage, and we're going to finish this chapter today, so we'll be in paragraphs 3 and 4, talking about marriage, and again, this is very important because there are so many corruptions in our own day concerning the definition of marriage, the institution of marriage, right? all of these various things and, and how it's being practiced, which has led to much of the misery, ruin, the chaos that we see all around us in our present world is because of the attack on the institution of marriage. And so it's very important for us to understand what the Bible teaches and to hold and practice the institution of marriage according to the Word of God. And as we do that, when, when we obey God and we do things His way, then it leads to blessing within our, our own life, in our home, in our families. And certainly this is true concerning marriage. Okay, so chapter 25, and we'll read paragraph 3. It says, Everyone who is able to give rational consent may marry. Yet Christians are to marry in the Lord. Therefore, those who profess the true religion should not marry unbelievers or idolaters, nor should the godly be unequally yoked by marrying those who lead evil lives or hold to damnable heresies. So here, everyone who is able to give rational consent may marry, meaning here, adults, right? That when people reach a stage of maturity, a stage of adulthood, then if they want to and they're able to give consent, then they are free to marry, right? They are allowed and permitted by God to marry. We should not promote the practice of child marriage where children uh, who have not pass through puberty or into adulthood, neither physically nor mentally, emotionally, are given in marriage, such as is practiced in some false religions and pagan cultures, like Islam, Hinduism, other false religions practice child brides, uh, child marriage, where adults will marry uh, children, those who are children, typically adult men marrying uh, female uh, children, this was the practice of Muhammad, the false prophet of Islam, that his favorite wife was, he married when she was six years old, six years old, and consummated the marriage when she was nine, and she was never able to have children, and you wonder why, and this is, this is why. So, and he is the prophet who is held up as the highest standard of, of how they should live within their religion, and this is the type of practice that he was doing, and this still is common in many uh, Muslim countries today. So that should not be practiced. That's why it says everyone who can give rational consent should, should marry. Children cannot do that, and so sh children should not be married off in that, in that way. So only those who are adults, okay? And if they desire to marry, then they are permitted by God to marry, and this is the expectation for most people. Yet Christians are to marry in the Lord. So here is the condition for Christians to marry. They must marry in the Lord, meaning another believer, believer with believer. This is what is required, and this is the stipulation that is placed by God. Now, it doesn't say whites should only marry whites, blacks should only marry blacks, right? Browns should only marry browns. None of those things are said, right? Only in the Lord. So if a white Christian marries a black Christian, it's not a sin, right? It's not a sin. Or if a, a European Christian marries a Hispanic Christian is not a sin because they're in the Lord, 
right? So anything that was taught in former days or expected within the society that looked down upon these type of interracial marriages and said, oh, those things are no good, that's not true. If they're both believers, then it doesn't matter, right? That's all that matters is that we marry Christians, right? Marry in the Lord. So the conclusion is those who profess the true religion should not marry unbelievers or idolatries or idolaters. So those who are true believers and have the true religion, the Christian religion, the religion taught in the Bible, we are not permitted to marry unbelievers, those who are unbelieving and those who deny the gospel of Jesus Christ or idolaters, those of a false pagan religion. So atheists, idolaters, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, agnostics, right? Whatever false religion is out there, Christians are not permitted by God, they're forbidden from marrying those of a foreign God, right? Those of a foreign religion. We read about that in Malachi, right? In chapter two, this is one of the things that they were doing, that they were abandoning the wife of their youth and they were giving themselves to the daughter of a foreign God, marrying strangers, marrying foreigners, right? The problem not being that they're foreigners who were proselytes, foreigners who were believers and converts to the true and living God, that's not forbidden. That wasn't even forbidden in the Old Testament. But otherwise, Boaz would not have been permitted to marry Ruth. But Boaz married Ruth, though she was a Moabitess, right, according to her ethnic descent, but according to her spiritual descent, she was an Israelite, an Israelite indeed, a true godly Israelite who was better than many of the physical Israelites of her own day because she was a true believer. So Boaz the Israelite man was not forbidden from marrying the Moabite woman because she was a convert to the true religion, right? But if she was an idolater, then he would have been forbidden from marrying her. So we should not marry those of idolatrous religions, nor should the, un, should the godly be unequally yoked by marrying those who lead evil lives or hold to damnable heresies, here, I think the stipulation is that if there's a godly person, they should not marry a superficial Christian, someone who claims to be a Christian, but who lives an evil life. And this is commonly the case, right? Even, you know, in former days, in certain parts of the world, everyone was a Christian. In England, say during the 15 and 1600s, you were born into that country, you were a Christian. You, this is the religion that was practiced by everyone and everyone was a part of the church. Well, if there's a true believer within them, if there's a godly man, he shouldn't marry one of these evil doing, superficial fake Christians there that is in England or any other place or someone who holds to damnable heresies. Meaning, that variety of Christianity where one of the tenets of their doctrine is a heresy that's damnable. So we should not marry Roman Catholics, right? They hold to damnable heresies, many damnable heresies. So even though technically they are Christian, they're not in the Lord in the true sense because their doctrine is so rotten, right, so corrupt that there's no way that they can be true believers and hold to these things. So we should not marry them either. There has to be discernment and a proper judgment and understanding of what a true Christian is, right? That's why marry in the Lord. Well, in the Lord has to be defined, and it has to be those who hold to good doctrine and those who are seeking to live a godly life. That's the way that we should be. And then within that parameter, 
then we are free to marry whomever we please, right? As long as it is in the Lord. Okay, the passages. Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So there, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage as an institution established by God should have an honorable view. This is the view that we should have of marriage. That it was created by God, it was instituted by God for the good, for the betterment of humanity, right? For our own benefit. So we should have a high and an honorable view of this institution of marriage. It is unbecoming of a Christian to degrade, to talk down upon, to mock marriage, right? To call it, you know, the ball and chain, right? The, the slavery, whatever it is that people say, Right, about marriage that makes it look unappealing, that makes it look like something that is a drudgery, that's something that is a detriment to your happiness and to your life, we shouldn't talk like that. We should say that marriage is an honorable institution because it was founded and established by God. So let marriage be held in high honor. We should speak of it in this honorable way as something good and holy and created by God. And he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed, the bed between the husband and the wife, they, right? This is when they marry, they share a bed together. That bed should be undefiled, undefiled by strangers who do not belong in the bed, right? So the husband should not bring a strange woman into the bed, nor should the wife bring a strange man into the bed. It should remain pure between the two because the only way the bed and what takes place there can be holy and pure and sinless before God is if it is between the husband and wife. And also that it should be undefiled in that the husband should not bring perversions into that with his wife, nor should the wife bring perversions into the marriage bed with the husband. So even in the bed, it's not anything goes but it should be what is pure and proper and dignified and holy, right? So any practice that is unnatural, anything that is of perversion should be rejected by both the husband and the wife, and it should not be practiced in the marriage bed. The marriage bed should be undefiled either by strangers or by any practice, any uh, practice that is a perversion or something that is unnatural and foreign to good, proper relations between the husband and the wife. And why is it so important that we hold it in honor and that we don't let the marriage bed be defiled? For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Right? If we don't hold marriage in honor, if we don't see it as a sacred institution that is the gateway right, to proper sexual relationships, then if we have this dishonorable view of marriage and say, it doesn't matter, we can just do whatever we want with whomever we want, whether we're married or not. Isn't that what's happening today? People don't hold marriage in honor, and they don't practice those things that are, should be between only a husband and wife. They don't do that within marriage because they don't have any regard for the institution. They don't hold it in honor, and they just do whatever they want. 
Well, that's going to lead to sexual immorality. If you don't have a high, honorable view of marriage as a sacred institution and as the only proper institution where sexual desires can be fulfilled in a way that's not sinful toward God, so if you don't have that high, honorable, reverent view of this institution, then what are you going to do? You're going to be immoral. You're going to commit sexual immorality. You're going to fornicate and have relations outside of the marriage bed, outside of this honorable institution, and then what's God going to do to you? He's going to judge you on the day of judgment because sexually immoral persons will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're going to be judged by God on the day of judgment. And also adulterous. If you don't keep the marriage bed undefiled, if you bring an adulterous woman into the marriage bed or an adulterous man into the marriage bed, then you're going to be judged as well because neither the fornicators nor the adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God, right? That's very simple, straightforward, and clear. So that's the way that we should view marriage, the marriage bed, anything foreign to what is good, proper relations established by God. Okay, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We actually talked about this passage yesterday in our post-Bible study Bible study. So we did a double Bible study at lunch, and we were talking about sin and heresy. Sin and heresy. How does the Bible define sin and heresy? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. Okay, so here, the Spirit, right? The Spirit of Christ expressly says that this is going to happen in latter times. There are going to be those who depart from the faith. Okay, at one time, they proclaimed the faith. They adhered to the faith. They were with us. They said that they belong to the faith, but they're going to depart from that faith, and they're no longer going to hold to sound faith anymore because they are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Can you hold to teachings of demons, deceitful spirits, and go to heaven? Impossible, right? So it's impossible that you would follow unrepentantly, right? That's what we're talking about here. Unrepentant, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons and inherit the kingdom of God. So is this a black and white issue? Is this an issue of life and death? Are we talking about issues of salvation or are these just non-essential and you can do whatever you want, right? This is not non-essential. That's what he's saying. It's a teaching of a demon. You cannot follow demons and inherit the kingdom of God. And through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. Here we have insight into the promotion, the founding, the promulgation of false teaching. False teaching begins with demons, and then it is spread abroad in the world through insincere liars whose conscience are seared. This is the false teacher. The demon is the one that inspires the false teacher, to teach his false doctrine. The demon teaches the man the false teaching, and then the man promotes or publishes that false teaching in the world and in the church, 
And what is their goal? Why do they want to do this? So that we will depart from the faith. So that we will depart from the simple, straight, and narrow way of the Lord and will go and follow strange teachings, strange doctrines that are not from God, and then we'll go to hell. That's what they want. Both the demon and the father of demons, who is Satan, the prince of demons, and his servants, the false teachers, this is what the goal that they have in mind. Right? And are they sincere in their beliefs? He says they're insincere. They have, they're, insin- they're insincere liars. They are liars. They know what they're doing. So they don't mean well. Right? That's what people will say. Oh, well, they mean well. They're doing the best they can. No, they don't. They don't mean well. They're not, yeah, they are doing the best they can at deceiving people and sending them to hell. But that's not good, right? That's not commendable. And they, their conscience is seared. They have no conscience, right? All they care about is their belly and their pocketbook. That's all they care about. Okay, now what is this damnable heresy that these demons and these insincere liars are teaching and promoting in the church? who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, many would say, well, it's not a doctrinal issue. It's not an issue of salvation. They're not denying the Trinity. They're not denying the deity of Christ. They're not denying the resurrection of Christ. These are non-essential. These aren't gospel issues. These are the types of words people throw around to excuse to legitimize false teaching. But what are the two teachings that these liars are teaching in the church that are proof that they've departed from the faith? These are teachings of demons. What are the demons teaching the people? They're forbidding marriage. They're saying that marriage, we shouldn't marry, right? They're forbidding it. They're saying, no, if you really want to be godly, then you should not get married at all. Well, what church teaches that today within at least a portion of that church, is it not the Roman Catholics? Don't they forbid their priests from getting married? They, they forbid their priests, and then they promote the nuns, these women, to be perpetual virgins like the Virgin Mary, which is a lie, because Mary wasn't a virgin her whole life. She was a virgin when Christ was conceived and when Christ was born, but after Christ was born, she had other children with her husband, Joseph right, through the natural means. She wasn't a virgin for the rest of her life, as they falsely teach. So they promote her as a virgin, and then they say, for the women, if you really want to be godly and spiritual, you'll give your life over to the church as a virgin to Christ. And Christ will be your husband, and you won't get married, and you won't have children, and you won't raise a family. And then for the priest, they teach them not to get married. They forbid them from being married. You cannot serve as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church if you're married. So then what happens? They go and they abuse and molest children, especially young boys. This is common and it happens many places in the Roman Catholic Church. And it's all out there for anyone to see. So it's demonic. They're forbidding marriage and abstinence from food that God created. They're saying, oh, you shouldn't eat this food. You shouldn't eat that food. Right? And it's an issue of godliness, right? Not an issue of preference, not an issue of, you know, for my diet, I'm going to eat fruit and, and vegetables and non-processed meat, right? Okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. But if you start insisting that you, everyone must do this, or you cannot eat this meat, 
You cannot eat pork. You cannot eat this. And if you do, you're sinning against God. Well, once a person begins to do that, what are they doing? That is the teaching of a demon. That will send you to hell if you follow those things. So here, forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They say, no, you can't receive it with thanksgiving. You have to reject it and abstain from it, and that's what God requires of you. No, that's not true. It's a lie. So here, again, forbidding marriage is a damnable heresy. So we should not forbid marriage in our churches. We shouldn't forbid it for our sons, for our daughters, but rather we should encourage it as what is proper and natural and common among people today. Okay, so if you want to get married, then you are permitted to get married. Yet, Christians are to marry in the Lord. This is the condition that we are to marry in the Lord. So it's not a free-for-all. So there is the freedom. You may marry, but here is the stipulation, only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven. Verse thirty-nine. Chapter seven, verse thirty-nine. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. So the wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, right? The wife is bound. Do you not know? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, right? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law of marriage, Accordingly, she be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Right? The woman is free if her husband dies. If her husband is alive, she's not free. If her husband dies, she is free. That's what he's saying here. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, right? They are to be married together and to have the normal marriage relationship. But if her husband dies, she's not bound to her husband anymore because he's dead, right? This covenant is binding, right? And everyone knows this because when uh, people get married, you say, as long as we both shall live, right? Didn't everybody say that when you got married? As long as we both shall live. So this covenant is binding only as long as both parties are alive. But if one of the parties dies, then the other one is now free. The covenant is no longer in place because the one party died. So she's not bound to her husband anymore. She's free to be married again. She can remarry whomever she wishes, right? So if she doesn't like this guy, she doesn't have to marry him. If she doesn't like this one, she doesn't have to marry him. But if she does like this one, then she should marry him, right? Whoever she wishes, but only what? In the Lord. That's the stipulation. Only in the Lord. He must be a believer, a true believer, 
who has been proven and who evidences true salvation from God. So that's the stipulation for us. We can be married, but only in the Lord. Therefore, those who profess the true religion should not marry unbelievers or idolaters, nor should the godly be unequally yoked by marrying those who lead evil lives or hold to damnable heresies, whether they claim to be Christian or not. If they claim to be Christian and they hold to damnable heresies, they're not. And if they claim to be Christians and they live evil lives, they're not. So we shouldn't marry those people until such a point that they prove that they're not evil, right? that they've repented and that they are living a proper life of a Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6, this one's not on the uh, page, but they allude to it, so I thought it'd be good for us just to read it. We're already over here in Corinthians anyway, so just a couple pages over. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there... Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And in terms of human relationships, what relationship in this life is closer, do we have a closer yoke with, than marriage? Right? It's the closest because the two become one flesh. The two become one flesh. So we should only marry believers. Right? Believers. Now, of course, if a person is an unbeliever, and they marry an unbeliever, and then one of them converts later, then that would go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If the unbelieving partner consents to live with them, then they should stay married to them and then have to make the most of it. If the unbelieving partner refuses to live with them, says, I won't live with you because you're a Christian and you're not an idolater anymore, and then the unbelieving partner separates from them, then they're free from them. But as long as they're willing to stay married to them, then they should be married to them and be faithful and do the best that they can in that situation. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13. And we'll pick up in verse 23. Nehemiah 13, 23 says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat them, and pulled out their hair. Now, here, when he says he cursed them, he doesn't mean curse them in a profane, profane way. Right? He's not cursing at them using swear words in that kind of filthy language, because we know Nehemiah wouldn't do that. He's a righteous man. But he means he's cursing them in the name of the Lord. He's pronouncing a curse from God upon them. And is he just in cursing them? Yes. 
Yes, because they're committing great sins against God. He confronts them, he curses them, he beats them, and pulls out their hair. Okay, so he's, this is serious business. He knows how serious this is, and he's taking it very seriously. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So there, he made them swear an oath before God that they would not practice this anymore, that they would no longer give their daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Right now, again, the issue here is not that Nehemiah is a racist, a xenophobe, that he hates uh, foreign nationalities. He, it's, that's not the issue. The issue is idolatry. These are idolatrous people. They worship a foreign god. So how can you marry these women who worship a foreign god? How is the faith going to be passed on from generation to generation? How are you going to raise your children in the fear of the Lord when you're marrying women who worship idols? Because they're going to be teaching the children to worship idols. right? And at best, everything's going to be mixed and it's going to be no good. So he's telling them, quit doing this. Don't do this. And then he brings up Solomon as an example. Solomon, who was a righteous man, who was a wise man, there was no king like him. God loved him, so he was a true believer. Yet even Solomon, who's better than all of them, right? he's more wise than all of them, yet even he was led to sin on account of his foreign idolatrous wives. They made even him to sin. So what's going to happen to you people? Because you're nothing like Solomon. It's going to be even worse for them. So he tells them, don't do these things. We have to take the things of God very seriously. Right? Our children, our grandchildren, don't we want them raised in a Christian home? We don't want them raised in a divided home where the father and mother are not united together in the faith, where one is a believer and the other is an atheist, an agnostic, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist. Right? That's not going to be good. How are our children going to be believers? How are they going to be taught the faith when those things are happening? So he tells them, no, do not do these things. So it has more implications than just us. It has implications on future generations as well. And if we love our own soul, and if we love the Lord, and if we love our children and our future grandchildren, then we should only want to marry a true believer. A true believer, not a fake one, but a true one, as best that we can tell, right? Of course, it's always we do the best that we can. None of us are perfect. None of us have perfect wisdom. But as best that we can tell, we need to test and see whether these people are true Christians. And you need outside eyes, right? Outside help. Don't be so arrogant to think that you got it all figured out and that you can tell. You should ask your father primarily, right? Primarily, your father and your mother and just let them pick your spouse. Okay, all right, on we go. Chapter 25, uh, verse, verse 4. No, they get a say in it as well. But use the wisdom. Use the wisdom. Okay, 25, 4. Marriage should not occur within the degrees of blood relationship 
or kinship that are forbidden in the word. These incestuous marriages can never be made lawful so that the individuals may live together as husband and wife by any human law or consent of the parties involved. So here, marriage is forbidden within any of the degrees of blood relationship or kinship forbidden in the word of God. So whatever God forbids in terms of marriage, in terms of relationships, then we cannot marry those people, right? And if a person does marry someone like that, it's not lawful. It's an illegitimate marriage. It's not a lawful marriage because they cannot live as husband and wife before God because of this relationship, this prior relationship that existed. And it doesn't matter what human law says. It doesn't matter if the government says, okay, it's okay for a brother to marry his sister. It's still a sin before God. In, in the sight of God, it's an illegitimate marriage. And it doesn't matter what the state says, they cannot make this marriage legitimate by their sanctioning of it because they do not have the authority to outflank and outrule the authority of God. So God's authority is all that matters. So whatever relationships he says are forbidden are forbidden, and it, the relationships that he says are not forbidden are not forbidden, regardless of what the government, regardless of what the state, regardless of the laws of the land. Okay, So it should only occur within the degrees that are not forbidden by the word of God. So the passage that teaches this is Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18 gives us the standard here. And we have to have a standard to determine these things. We can't just go by what's popular, what people say, what the government says. Right? Because who's to say that they're not going to make up some arbitrary rule at a later date. So there has to be some universal, some standard that we appeal to outside of the whims and wishes of men that is founded on the word of God. And this is why we have Leviticus 18. It teaches us what relationships are forbidden for marriage. So we cannot marry within these degrees of relationships. Okay? All right. Leviticus chapter 18. And people say the Old Testament is impractical. It's very practical right here on this topic. Leviticus 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statues. You shall follow my rules and keep my statues and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statues and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So you're coming from Egypt, and they did not practice this in Egypt. You're going to Canaan, and they don't practice it in Canaan. But it doesn't matter what the Egyptians say, and it doesn't matter what the Canaanites say. All that matters is what? What does God say? What does God say on the topic? And that's still true today. So it doesn't matter what America says. It doesn't matter what Oklahoma says. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what the president says. All that matters is what does God say? And then we need to practice what the word of God says, regardless of the culture, regardless of the nation, regardless of what men say, we have to walk in the statues and rules of God. That's what we have to do. Okay, here we go. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives. So now he's going to define 
what is a close relative, to uncover nakedness, I am the Lord. Because there are some relatives that, according to this definition, aren't close. And in that case, they are permitted to be married. But the close relatives, they are forbidden from marrying. Okay? Okay, here we go. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Okay, that's simple, straightforward. You can't marry your mom, right? No one should do that. That would be evil. And everyone would say, yeah, okay, that's a no-brainer, right? It's a no-brainer, okay? Next, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. This would be your stepmother. So if your mom dies and your father marries another woman and then he dies, you're not permitted to marry his wife, right? Even though you're not blood-related, it's still an abomination. You shouldn't do that. We'll get to this in a second. That's what was happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. The man had his father's wife, not his mother, but his father's wife after his mother. And this was an abomination that he says, even the Gentiles don't do these things. So you cannot marry your father's wife, your stepmother. This is forbidden. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, who brought you up in the family or in another home. So no sister. You cannot marry your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. So your granddaughter or your grandson, a grandparent can't marry their grandchildren. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. I take this to be your half-sister, right? Your father remarried and has a daughter, by another woman who's not your mother, she's your sister, your half-sister, but you can't marry your half-sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. That would be your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. So the aunt on the other side. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. So this would be the aunt who you're not related to by blood, yet by marriage it's still forbidden because she's married to your uncle and you are forbidden from ever marrying her or having any relation with her. And, and these are being spoken of to the men, but it would apply the other way as well. Right? It doesn't have to repeat that to make it clear and plain. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Okay, so your daughter-in-law, you cannot marry her. If your son dies and your wife dies, you can't marry your daughter-in-law. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Here, your brother's wife. So if your brother marries a woman and your brother dies, then you're not free to marry his wife. Now, the exception to this would be Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5. So we'll look at that real quick. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. The exception to this was the kinsman redeemer. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife 
and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed uh, to the name of the dead brother, that his name may be, not be blotted out of Israel. So there, the condition for this, or the uh, exception to this rule, was if they did not have any children, then the brother was supposed to marry the widow of his brother and have children on behalf of his brother. The first son would be his brother's son in terms of inheritance so that his name would not be blotted out of Israel. But if they had children together, then the brother could not marry her, right? That was forbidden from happening. Okay, 17. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. So you can't marry the daughter of a a woman that you're married to or have any type of relation in that way. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Then verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanliness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, and you shall not lie with an animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. For by all of these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants." But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people." So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Right? So are these expectations, these rules, these commandments, are they just for Israel? No, No, they're not. Because he's saying the reason I punished the nations that were there before you is because they were doing these things. So God expected the Canaanites not to practice these types of relationships, but they were practicing them, and that is part of the reason why God judged them and expelled them, vomited them out of the land. So they were expected not to practice these types of perversions, and he calls them abominations. It is a perversion, right? It is a depravity for a person. These are depraved, evil, wicked practices that everyone should know that this should not be done. Right? This is natural law. This is common knowledge. People should know not to do these kinds of things. And yet, what do they do? They do it anyway. They not only do it, but they give approval to those who practice such things. They did those things, and God cast them out. And if you do those things, he's going to do the same to you. So these are the relationships, the degrees, that are forbidden by the word of God. And we should not marry within these close relatives, these close relationships. It is forbidden. It is an abomination before God. 
these incestuous, incestuous marriages can never be made lawful so that the individuals may live together as husband and wife by human law or consent of the parties involved. These marriages, even if the government says it's okay, even if they give their seal of approval, even if it is the very ruler who is doing this, it's still not legitimate before God. It is an evil, it is an abomination, it is a depravity before the Lord. Mark chapter 6. This is why John the Baptist got in hot water with Herod. Not only because of the adultery, but also because of the relationship. He had his brother's wife. Well, isn't that what was just forbidden? Didn't we just read that in Leviticus 18? Those are the kinds of practices that cause God to destroy the Canaanites. Well, Herod is practicing that. And if Herod is practicing it publicly, openly, and he's the ruler, what's everyone else going to do? They're going to assume, aren't they supposed to be an example of good conduct? That's what he, the ruler should do. They should be an example for other people to follow. But if he's practicing depravity, then everyone else is going to practice depravity as well. And that's why John speaks out against him and condemns him because of his sin. Mark chapter 6 and verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So even though they were married, what is John saying? It's not lawful. It's an illegitimate marriage. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife because of Leviticus chapter 18. God forbids it, yet you're doing it and it's not lawful. And that's why Herod had John thrown into prison and then Herodias, being the spiteful woman that she was and the vendetta she had against him, snuckered Herod into chopping off his head. Okay, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Right, and that's like what we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were reading about the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing on its wings, and then we will go out leaping like calves from the stall. And we will tread the wicked. The wicked will be ashes under the soles of our feet. What justice did John ever get in this life against his tormentors? He got none, right? They, they chopped his head off. Herod did, and then Herodias did. But in the life to come, who is going to have to come and bow down before John the Baptist? Herod will bow down before him, and Herodias will bow down before him. And then he'll do to them what they did to him. Right? God will give vengeance to his children against their adversaries. That's when the justice will be realized. And that's why it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord knows how to get vengeance for his people. We just have to wait, wait for the, patiently for God to do this for us. That was a side note. It's not even on topic, but this is, it, it came to mind and it applies into many of the things that we talk about. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So here, he is incensed. He is shocked that they are tolerating this type of immorality in the church. Something that even pagans don't do. Even the pagans know that it's not right for a man to marry his father's wife. But you are a Christian church. You have the Old Testament scriptures. Don't they have Leviticus chapter 18? Why are they not reading it and applying it to the present situation? Probably because someone told them that the Old Testament was for Israel, but they're in the New Covenant now, and so it doesn't apply anymore. This is what happens when people teach these kinds of things. They're not depending on what the Bible says. Well, even the pagans know that this is not appropriate. So if pagans know that by natural law, then shouldn't we Christians know that through the sacred writings, through the scriptures that give us the very wisdom of God? So he expects them to do something about it. Remove this man, throw him out. He can't be a part of the church while he's practicing this kind of depravity. Okay, now a couple of other points to make. First, something that typically comes up is people will say, what about Adam and Eve? What about Adam and Eve? Who did their children marry? Right? If they're the first couple, then who did their children marry? And it's obvious that they had to marry their siblings. So in the case of Adam and Eve, they had to marry their siblings. They had to marry their brothers, had to marry their own sisters, but only for one generation. Right? Then after that, there are cousins, and we'll talk about that in a second. Leviticus 18 does not forbid cousins marrying their cousins. So that is not a close relationship that is forbidden by the word of God, and it's not a sin. So in Adam and Eve's case, one generation, they had to marry the, uh, their own brothers and sisters. Then in that second generation, they could marry their cousins. The same would be true in Noah's day. Not that Noah's sons had to marry his sisters because he had no, they had no sisters. They had their own wives, and then they had children, and then their children married one another, their cousins, and then that is how the human race was continued on after that. Then the other one will be, what about Abraham and Sarah? She was his half-sister. She was his half-sister, and that would be similar to what we talked about last time, an exception to the rule, an exception to the rule like Isaiah walking around naked, like Ezekiel eating food on dung, uh, like uh, Hosea marrying a prostitute, things that commonly should not be done, but in this case, God permitted it, and he did not forbid it, and he did not expect him to divorce Sarah, but he expected him to stay married to her, and he even blessed the marriage by bringing Isaac through that relationship, right, through that relationship. But commonly, we should not marry our sisters or our half-sisters or any of these relationships that are forbidden. Okay, now, cousins. This is another one that people bring up. What about cousins? Because in America, in some places it's forbidden, in other places it's not. I know you're thinking, Arkansas doesn't mind, West Virginia, actually West Virginia forbids it. So uh, I don't know about Arkansas, Oklahoma, now get this, Oklahoma forbids marrying cousins, but it's okay to fornicate with them, 
and it's okay to live together and fornicate, but you just can't get married. Now, does that make any sense at all? Is that not the dumbest thing you've ever... It makes no sense. It either should be forbidden or it should not be forbidden. So the question is, is it a sin or is it not for cousins to marry? Well, certainly there was a time in America where it was not forbidden. Certainly, we read from Leviticus 18, and anywhere in Leviticus 18 did it forbid cousins from marrying cousins. And the answer is no. It was not forbidden at all in Leviticus 18, nor is there any other scripture that forbids a cousin marrying a cousin. Okay, in Oklahoma, it's forbidden, but in Florida, it's not. So in Florida, it's permitted for a cousin to marry a cousin. So is it a sin to marry a cousin in Oklahoma? And then it's not a sin to marry a cousin in Florida? You see what I'm saying? How does, that, how does that work? So if you do it within these borders, it is a sin. But if you move over a couple of hundred miles and you get in this other border, then it's not a sin. Right? It can't be that way. Right? Morality, sin, righteousness, there has to be some standard. There has to be some objective standard that transcends the laws of the land. And what is that standard? It has to be the Word of God. We have to determine sin based upon the Word of God. So either it is a sin or it is not a sin, regardless of what the state says, right? Regardless of what the nation says, just like in the case with Herod, it doesn't matter that he's the king. It doesn't matter that he's the one that makes the laws. It's still a sin, whether or not he agrees or whether or not the law forbids it or not. And he was practicing it openly, so he was probably practicing it under the law. And this was commonly the case in many of the nobility of the Romans. So regardless of what the state says, it either is a sin or it's not a sin. And we have to determine sin, not according to human whims, which are subject to change. We have to determine it according to the word of God. There has to be some objective, moral standard, a moral truth from God. So that's the way that we have to determine it. And even in America, from its founding up until the late 18, early 1900s, it was never forbidden for cousins to marry. It was never forbidden. And then some studies came out and said, well, if cousins marry the, the offspring, they're dim-witted, they're slow, right? They're not very smart, those kinds of things. Well, I know a lot of people whose children are dim-witted, right, who are not cousins. So should we forbid, actually, we probably should forbid them from getting married. But so, and it was based upon science, right? That's what they always say, right? We have to follow, follow the science. Well, who's science, right? Who, who, who is a scientist? Because we remember two years ago that don't wear, they said don't wear masks, then they said wear them, then they said well only wear them inside, then you need to wear them outside as well even if you're surfing in the ocean by yourself, then they said you, if you get the, uh, the disease, the, the uh, COVID, then you need to uh, quarantine for, uh, for, for two months or 10 days, and then they changed it to five days, then they said okay well if you have the vaccine you can go to work, but if you don't have it, you can't go to work. And you, even if you have the virus and you have symptoms, but you're vaccinated, you can go to work. But if you don't have symptoms and you're not vaccinated, then you can't go to work. You see what I'm saying? It's nonsense. How are we supposed to know what to do when you have these kinds of people spewing out this kind of nonsense? Well, who never spews out nonsense? 
God, right? God doesn't, and God's word does not do so. So, the government cannot make laws contrary to the law of God. And citizens are not obligated to keep laws that are contrary to the law of God. So I don't think, according to the word of God, that it is a sin for cousins to marry. Now, it's not obligated for them to do so, but it's not a relationship that is forbidden by the word of God. And if cousins married, that it would not be, it would not be a sin for them to do so. And in many cases, it, is, it was preferable because you're staying, one, you already know them, you know the family, right? It's your nephew, and if he's uh, uh, going to be a problem, then you can do something about it, you know? You also, you know his dad really well, and you can talk to him. So you already know him, you already have a relationship, and then on the basis of inheritance, land, right? Those things are staying more closely into the family, right? So in many ways, it was advantageous for many years, and it still would be today, though most people would look down upon it today. I'm simply saying that according to the Bible, you cannot say it's a sin. It's not a sin according to the Bible, and the Bible has to be our standard of determining all truth of what is sin and what is not sin. And I bring this up because this is an example of governments making arbitrary laws that have no basis in the Bible, no basis in moral truth. Right? They don't have the authority to do those kinds of things. Right? How can they make a law requiring citizens to get a vaccine in order to work? Who gave them the authority to do that? How can they make laws regulating what you can do on your own property? As long as you're not murdering, raping, pillaging, doing those things, they, how can they tell you what to do in your own property, in your own home? Right? They, they don't have the right to do that kind of stuff, but they've taken that right, and most people just say, well, if the government says it, then that's what we have to do. Well, we just have to go by the Bible. That, that's what matters, and if what we're doing is not contrary to Scripture, then it's not a sin. It's not a sin for us to do those things. We just need to practice whatever the Bible says. Okay, so that's uh, marriage, right? That's marriage, and uh, we ended there with a real, real, bang, real bang there on relationships and those types of things, but I'm going to stick to what the Bible says. That's what we have to use as our standard for all things. Okay, so let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for marriage. Lord, the blessing that, Lord, you have given, Lord, to, to all mankind. Lord, this is a goodness, a kindness that you bestow, not just on the righteous, Lord, even on the wicked and unbelieving. Lord, many of them get some benefit, some blessing in this life temporarily out of marriage. But Lord, especially those who are righteous. Lord, when two believers marry, and when they're raising their family in the fear of the Lord. Lord, when they're encouraging each other in the home. Lord, drawing scripture to one another's mind. Lord, helping sanctify one another. Lord, what a blessing and benefit that this is. Lord, a help not only for this life, but a help also for the life to come. Because they are helping us walk in righteousness and godliness. So Lord, we thank you for marriage. And Lord, we pray that it would be held in high regard. Lord, that it would be honorable to us. Lord, that we would not impugn this institution, Lord, as is commonly practiced in our own day. But Lord, may we hold it as sacred, and Lord, may our marriage beds be undefiled. Lord, may we remember that you will judge all those immoral persons, and Lord, all of those who are adulterous. Father, we pray for our sons and daughters. 
Lord, we want them to marry. Lord, we want them to have families. We want them to raise children. But Lord, we want them to marry believers. Lord, those who are true Christians. Lord, those who are godly. Lord, we pray that for our sons, that you would provide godly wives. And Lord, for our daughters, that you would provide godly husbands. Lord, that their homes may be united together. Lord, that the heart of the husband and wife, Lord, would be bound together in a common faith. Lord, in a common purpose in life. So Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, do this for us. Lord, that you would provide. Lord, knowing that you are wiser, Lord, than we are. Lord, you know how to take care of us better than we know how to care for ourselves. Lord, you love our children more than we love them. And so, Lord, you are the one who can provide all things. And, Lord, we pray that you would do so. Lord, for their good. Lord, for our good. Lord, for your glory. So, Lord, be with us and help us in these things. Lord, preserve us from the wickedness that is all around us. Lord, from the corruptions that we see in our own society. And, Lord, keep us from having this perverse view of marriage and of uh, sexuality, Lord. Keep us from practicing these abominable practices, Lord, that were common amongst the Egyptians and Canaanites and even common in our own day as well. Lord, preserve us and cause us to walk in holiness, Lord, as we follow your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.